now if you'd like. High five on the way out. Let them know you love them. Well, we're in um, Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 5 through 9. Uh, for the past many weeks, we've been looking at a series of relationships as Paul is teasing out what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and as a result of that, um, to be uh, submitting our lives uh, in our relationships with others. He talked about the marriage relationship, talked about the parent-child relationship, and now he talks about, okay, the easiest thing for me to do right now is to say he's going to talk about employers and employees. But you folks are really sharp, and you're going to notice that the words aren't employer-employee, because that's, that's not really the relationship he's talking about. Uh, my translation uses the word bondservant. Uh, another way to translate is that word is slaves. So he's going to talk about slaves and masters. And in doing so, Paul is encompassing the entirety of the household of the first century. Not all households were wealthy enough for all aspects, but uh, many of the households would have the patriarch at the top, the husband, and the father, and the master. And the household would have, of course, the wife, who would have her responsibilities, the children who fit in in a, a, a very defined sort of way. And then the household would have a bunch of servants uh, moving through the, the complex, if you will. Some of those servants uh, would be artisans. They might have a technical skill. They might be an artisan and a craftsman of some sort. And uh, their work and their labor would be done, perhaps out in the community, but their income would be brought back into the household. And so the servants or slaves uh, were actually contributors to the household income. Uh, there were very few regulations on what could be done to a servant or to a slave. Uh, there were a few restrictions in the ancient Roman world, but by and large, the master had pretty much free reign in how he treated the slaves slash servants slash bond servants um, in the household. Our temptation is to overlay the American experience on that word slaves. Uh, our temptation is to think of it as being a one-to-one -one correspondence with what our country experienced just prior to the Civil War. Uh, that would probably be something of a mistake. Um, Roman slavery was... Uh, so deeply embedded in the culture that um, people really didn't see it uh, because it was just a normal thing to do for most people. Uh, and so um, what we need to do is try to understand uh, what Paul was talking about. In the United States, the kind of slavery that led to the Civil War was called chattel slavery. Um, that is not exactly what we have uh, entirely here in uh, the Roman system slavery. There were a couple of ways that you could become a slave uh, in, uh, in ancient Rome. One of them was to join the army. 
No, it wasn't joining the army made you a slave. But when you joined the army and you went to battle and you lost the war and you became a prisoner of war, then that other country would take you and make you a lifelong slave. It was, it was just about the worst way to become a slave uh, because uh, many times you belonged to the government, you belonged to the state, and the state also owned the mines. And so the government would put you to work in the mines in some of the most difficult and arduous uh, labor possible. And so as a um, former soldier, you found yourself as a lifelong slave, no hope, doing the, the worst work possible. Now the other way to become a slave was actually to sell yourself into slavery. And here's how it worked. You wanted to start a business, say, or you wanted to practice your, your craft, whatever it might be, but you didn't have the startup money. And so uh, and instead of going to Kickstarter, you would go to a wealthy person in the city and you'd say, I would like to start a craft uh, business or concern and so forth, and would you loan me the money to start this business? And the rich person would say, yes, I'll loan you the money. How long do you want to be my slave? And you would negotiate. A, a common length of time would be seven years. I'll be your slave for seven years if you'll give me the money to start my business. Some of the more enterprising people, in order to get money to start a business or to pay off a debt or whatever, if you needed money, couldn't go to the bank. So you go to a rich person, you'd say, uh, I need some money. Would you loan it to me? He'd say, sure, I'll loan you the money. And uh, you'd, you'd say, how long do you want to be my slave? And the answer was, well, I don't want to be your slave at all. But I happen to have a son. And uh, he doesn't know it, but he wants to be your slave. And uh, there, there are many instances in which people sold their children into slavery. But they were, what they were really doing is selling them into a household where they would work and labor in the household for a certain period of time. So it was temporary slavery uh, in many times, but slavery was slavery was slavery. Uh, in uh, Western civilization, we, we had that experience. Uh, maybe you've heard of indentured servitude. Uh, this is where a person would uh, go to somebody and say, hey, I, I'd like to learn your craft and uh, your business. And they say, sure, you can do that. I'll teach it to you, but uh, you've got to be my indentured servant for seven years. Well, under English law, that indentured servant was virtually a slave. They, they could be mistreated, they could be punished, or they could be told to do whatever the master decided. In, in fact, Benjamin Franklin was actually an indentured servant. He had been sold to his brother. And uh, uh, that didn't go over well with, with, uh, with Ben. And so uh, he actually ran away from his brother uh, as an indentured servant. A servant. He was a fugitive, and I, I believe he left Boston and, and went to Philadelphia, something like that. Uh, but it's because he was running away uh, virtually as a slave. And so that's why in our, in our scripture, when it uses the word bond servant, uh, there's a good chance that that word, the Greek word is doulos, uh, may have been referring to someone who had a bond. They were, they were bound to somebody for a length of time. It was still an unfair, unequal, uh, unjust situation, uh, but it was something that was a part of the local economy. See, that, that's why you, you really didn't have slave uprisings in Rome except for the former soldier slaves. Remember Spartacus? Yes. Uh, he served in the United States Senate. And, oh, no, that, that was a different 
And Spartacus was a former soldier who was a slave. And all the former soldier slaves, because they're working in the mines and like doing really hard, painful stuff, um, they figured, we know how to fight a battle. And so they rose up and, and there was that slave rebellion. But your, your bond servants, your people who were in, in the households, they would have thought you were nuts. What, why, are you, why would you want to get rid of slavery? This is how we get working capital. This is how we pay off debts. Um, I was trying to think about what would be some of the most uh, uh, likely and similar situations in our, in our world today to that kind of slavery. And uh, the, the best I could come up with um, was uh, student loans. Um, when you think about it, you basically sell your soul for a, to get, a, get an education and you try to pay it off and you can't. Credit card debt is a real good example of slavery. The Bible says that the borrower is a slave of the lender. And that's kind of what you had going on in the ancient world. You, you have that going on now. Uh, but we also think about the fact that in those relationships, legally, uh, culturally, according to the rules of society, as a bondservant, as a slave, you had few, if any, rights at all. You had a few, but not many. Um, the Old Testament is remarkable in the number of rights it enumerates for slaves and how they cannot be mistreated. Um, that didn't exist in Roman society. But uh, you had few, it, it was unjust. It was one person having power to abuse another person. And so when Paul writes about how do you respond to that, how, how does a Christian respond when they find themselves in an unequal, unfair, unjust kind of situation in their life, particularly with slavery in mind. But in, in general, when, you, when you're confronted with a, a situation, somebody's got all the power, you have none, what do you do? How do you respond to that? Um, Paul talks about that in several places in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21 uh, and following. He says, look, if you're a Christian and you find yourself to be a bondservant, he says, don't, you know, don't try to run away and get out from under. He says, go ahead and live with that. Uh, don't let it bother you. There's, there's something bigger going on in your life than just uh, your economic situation. There's the love of God in Christ Jesus for you. But then he said something interesting uh, at the end of the verse. He says, but if you have the opportunity to be free, take it. Just go for it. Do it. And then at the end of that, he says, you were bought with a price. And that's true. You were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And he ends the, the passage by, or the, the verse by saying, and therefore do not become the bondsman, the bondservant of any man. I have many ways to translate that into our world today. One of them is don't go into debt. There's some kinds of debt that, that uh, you know, house, to buy a house is very hard for most of us to buy that in our 20s when we're <laughs> just starting out. Um, trust me, it's hard. Um, but a lot of the debt that we have is just unnecessary. And it's taken not because we're trusting God, but because we just want stuff. We want something right away. I understand extenuating circumstances, illnesses, and things like that. But by and large, avoid debt like the plague. You don't want to belong to anybody. And that's one of the things that, that Paul was talking about there. It sort of answers the question of why the Bible doesn't uh, advocate the abolition of slavery. Why isn't there something in there where, you know, Paul says, slaves, obey your masters. 
Why didn't he say, slaves, rise up in rebellion, claim your humanity, claim your rights, assert that you are a human being worthy of respect. Why don't you, why didn't the Bible say that? And I think the answer is this, the Bible says the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the agenda, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we know is the gospel changes everything. That wherever the gospel is proclaimed and then applied to life, freedom follows. Now I know that we've spent thousands of years trying to avoid that dynamic and we've come up with very clever ways of, of interpreting the Bible and applying our, our faith to our lives and things like that. But if you honestly come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if you honestly proclaim the gospel and live for the truth of the gospel, the freedom follows. So the agenda, if you will, the agenda of the New Testament is not uh, some social, historical movement of abolition, although the gospel was very much involved in, in abolition um, in, in history. But the real point is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that sets men and women free. So that's sort of a, a background and running start. Let's look at these verses in Ephesians. Chapter 6, look at verse 5. It says, bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father, our lives are so fragmented and torn apart and broken. We live with a collection of pieces jumbled together and sometimes we just are overwhelmed that we are not whole and that we are not just one person, but we're divided. But how thankful we are that the power of the Holy Spirit can bring our lives together, can take the broken pieces of our lives and create a vessel for your praise. How thankful we are that though we are fragmented and frazzled, though we are heading in a thousand different directions, the power of the gospel brings us back to a singleness of heart and a singleness of person and that to give you glory. Father, we're thankful that you have the power and thankful that your Holy Spirit has led us to kneel before your throne of grace that we might give you our lives as broken, as imperfect as we are, simply craving the work of your Spirit to heal us, to mend us, to make us whole again. Father, we're so thankful that we give you the honor, the praise, and the glory for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians, those renegade religionists, throw them in jail because he wants to protect the Jewish heritage. 
he comes face to face with Jesus Christ and realizes that his relationship with the Father is through the Son, not through the law, not through the sacrifices, not through the temple. But his relationship to God the Father must come through God the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know if he thought about it that way, but he sure did later on. And he came to understand that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That God doesn't have two different ways of saving people. One for those who are traditional and those who are, are, are a part of the stream of religion that, um, that, that is Judaism. But rather God's plan of salvation is one for all Jew and Gentile alike. And it turns out that there's no such thing as a Jew and no such thing as a Gentile. But we are all one then he got to thinking about it by the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, you know, there aren't two plans of salvation, one for men and one for women. It's not like, you know, Jesus had to die in a different way for each one, but there's only one cross, one shed blood, one gospel, one hope, one faith, one baptism, those things that we've talked about. He says, there's just one of those. And so as it turns out, there's no male or female in Christ Jesus. We are all one. Then he looked at the economic structure of the world around him. And it, he was just fascinated, I'm sure, fascinated by the fact that the master who stood at the top had to be lowered and humbled and confessed as a sinner. And that the slave at the bottom had to understand his infinite worth expressed in the love of God in Christ Jesus who died on the cross and shed his blood for us. That they both come to the same cross, pleading the same blood, receiving the same grace. And as it turns out, that in Christ Jesus, there's no master and there's no slave. But we are all one in Christ Jesus. So as Paul writes to us, as he writes uh, you know, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, Paul uh, looks at that, what we're looking at today, and he sees the masters and the slaves, and he says, you've got to understand, folks, you've got to remember that the gospel changes everything. Everything you thought you knew is turned upside down. Everything that you hung your hat on is taken away because there is only Jesus Christ and his righteousness, and that is our hope, and that is our only hope. And so it changed everything. Now, when he wrote to people, and, and as we saw in First Corinthians, he says, look, whether you're a master or slave, don't get, don't get hung up on that. If you can be free, that's great. Go for it. But if that's not going to work out in your circumstances, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to manifest the glory of God by the way that you live. And I want you to view your relationship as unjust as it might be with a master just lording it over you and making your life miserable. I want you to think about the glory of God in Christ before you think about how you're being wronged and injured. See, so often we slip into the old way of thinking. We start to think about who's done me wrong and who said the wrong thing. And, and I have a boss and they're on my case all the time. And, they're, and, and, and it's just not fair and it's not just. And you're right, it's not fair and it's not just. But here's what you need to think about. The glory of God in Christ Jesus. Because that changes absolutely everything. You know, we don't even have to wonder and speculate about how Paul uh, responded to particular circumstances in which he encountered 
uh, as slavery himself. There was an incident, and it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 16. The city of Philippi and Paul and Silas were, uh, were together, and they were preaching in the marketplace and proclaiming Christ. And there was a slave girl in the marketplace as well. She set up her shop there because her masters had bought her for the specific purpose of fortune-telling. She was inhabited by a demon. And this, this evil presence in her life, this dysfunctionality, this brokenness, this wickedness in her life had somehow given her a talent for convincing people that she knows the future. You know how that's done. If somebody talks long enough and you want to believe hard enough, you're going to believe what they're saying is true. Just ask the California psychic hotline. I mean, it, it, it's just a, a case of, of self-delusion. But she had this talent. She had this, this working whereby if, if she talked to you and said, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, you really believed her. And you were willing to pay money for it. And so as she told fortunes, the money she brought in went straight to her masters. It was a great business. And as Paul and Silas were preaching, the servant girls started ridiculing them and talking about them sarcastically and making fun of the gospel and, and just sort of distorting what they were, they were saying. And Paul looked at that servant girl. He looked at that slave. And he did not say to himself, well, that's just the way life is. She's a slave. What can I do about it? He didn't look at her and say, you know, sometimes there are people in your life who are like really annoying. He looked at her and I'm convinced his heart was moved with compassion because he saw someone whom God loved desperately. She needed a way out because Paul saw her through the lens of the he saw a majestic power of what God could do in her life. And he was not held back by the strictures of society. He was not held back by the, the confinements of, of an economic system. He was not held back because it would be improper for him to intrude on the life and choices of the masters. He saw the power of evil destroying a life. And so he said to her, you've got to stop this, and I'm going to help you with that. And he said to the unclean spirit, I wish you would take a hike. And the, unspirit, the unclean spirit does that at the power of the name of Jesus. And she was restored, and she was in her right mind. And she was healthy, physically, mentally, spiritually. And you would think the whole city would have rejoiced. But the masters came along and said, you know, you're tampering with our, our livelihood. We made an investment in this girl, and she belongs to us. And who are you to take her off the market, if you will? And they had Paul and Silas thrown into jail, and that's where they started the, the jail ministry. And they were singing hymns, and the earthquake opened up the Philippian jailer. Some of you know the rest of the story. If you don't, read it in Acts chapter 16. But here's the thing. When Paul encountered a slave who was being destroyed by slaves, the gospel set her free because he saw her through the lens of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. There's another instance. Let me relate it to you, and, and I'll, I'll try to be brief uh, in that. But I want to read to you an entire book of the Bible. Well, it's the, it's, it's the book of Philemon. It's a little letter that Paul wrote to a man named 
uh, Philemon. And if, if you, you would like to look at that with me, it's right in front of the book of Hebrews. And if that doesn't help you, use the table of contents, it's okay. Well, what happens is, there's a man named Philemon, and he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ through the ministry of Paul, we suspect. And having become a Christian, his life has been changed, it's been turned around. This, the, the, the letter tells us that there's even a church meeting in his house. That's how dedicated, that's how much uh, his life has been, been changed by the power of the gospel. But Philemon is a master, and he owns a slave, and this slave's name is Onesimus. And one day Onesimus says, you know, I can't take this anymore, and then this, this is just sort of oppressive. And folks, let me tell you, it doesn't matter how good it is, slavery is slavery is slavery. And so Onesimus runs away. And it may be the case that he even took some money with him that didn't belong to him. And so now Onesimus is a fugitive, and he's trying to get as far away from Philemon, his master, as he can and somehow the Holy Spirit brings him and hooks him up with the Apostle Paul. And Paul sees not a runaway slave and needs to be turned in and, and, and made, made to pay the price. But Paul sees somebody who needs Jesus because he sees him through the lens of the glory of God in, in, in Christ Jesus. And Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus and Onesimus becomes a believer. He becomes a Christian. And so Paul says, well, Onesimus, I'm going to send you back to your master, Philemon, but I'll write you a letter. I'll write a letter and you just give it to him. And so we can just see the, the encounter. You know, Philemon opens the door and there's Onesimus. And, you know, the, the initial response is you need to be punished and you need to give me the money back and all that. Onesimus just holds out this letter. Philemon opens it up and he sees the first line and says, Paul, I know Paul. He's my friend. He led me to Christ. Paul and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and to those in his household and to that church, grace to you. And then in verse 4, Paul writes, Philemon, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Folks, let me tell you, Paul's setting him up. He says, Philemon, I see that you love all believers in Jesus. You love the saints. And Onesimus happens to be one of those saints. But Philemon's feeling pretty good about himself. He says, oh yeah, he's noticed I do love all the saints. I love being with church people. Church people are my favorite people. I, I love the saints. So Paul says, I've heard about that. You love all the saints. Verse 6, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. See what Paul's doing? He's pointing everything to the work of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, my brother, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Philemon's on top of the world right now. Verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you, to do what is required. By the way, Paul has no legal authority to command anything. Philemon is going to be perfectly within his rights to 
take Onesimus and punish him severely because he's the master. Onesimus is the slave. The power of Paul to command is the power of the gospel. The power of Paul to command is the power of reminding Philemon that you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. And when you were dead and you were an enemy of God and you cared nothing about God, God loved you so much, Christ died for you. And so, though unworthy, though you didn't earn it and you could never earn it, God poured his grace into your life. Believe it. That's the authority. It's the authority of the gospel. God's grace in Christ. And so, Paul says, I, I could command it. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. See what he's done? Says Philemon, you think you've got it hard? I'm an old guy. Some verses become more and more real to you as you live. And this says, I'm an old guy. Not only that, I'm in prison. By the way, Philemon, how's life for you? Okay. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. He didn't say your slave. So I appeal to you for my child. How could he say that? The gospel of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you. Now he is indeed useful to you. The word for useless is akristos. The, the word for useful is eukristos. Um, you hear the Christos part. Um, it's very similar to Christos. It's, it's sort of a play on word. He says he used to be Christless and now he's Christful to you. He says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my heart. Sending my heart. This is how we know that Paul grew up in a Jewish home. Go ahead, Anesimus, uh, 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 Philemon. Break my heart. Who am I? You have to read the scriptures with a little bit of imagination. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, that your goodness might not be a bad compulsion, but of your own accord. Maybe this is why, he goes on to say, maybe this is why he left. Maybe this is why God let him run away. Because he ran away lost, he came back found. He ran away dead, he's come back alive. He ran away a slave. He's come back a brother in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he says, and, and Philemon, look, if, if he owes you anything, I'll pay it. Look, I'll, I'll sign it right here. I owe you. I will pay anything that, that Onesimus owes you. I'll pay that. Now, we're, we're not sure exactly what happened after that. There's a man by the name of Onesimus who becomes the bishop of Ephesus very shortly after this. And scholars debate because that's what scholars do. But I like to think it's true. That this man Onesimus ran away useless and a slave. Became a leader in the body of Christ. Why? Because Paul saw him through the lens of the glory of God. And that changes everything. So when we get to Ephesians next week. <laughs> 
No, we're going to finish it. I, I, I'm just, let me just give it to you real quick. And he says, bond servants, obey your masters. He's not saying, oh, oh um, just, just turn off your mind and you do whatever they say because God doesn't accept the Nuremberg defense. Nuremberg defense, that's, that's where um, more criminals after World War II were put on trial for crimes against humanity and war crimes. And a lot of them said, don't blame me. I was told to do it. I just followed orders. And the court rejected that. It's called the Nuremberg defense. And it's whatever you say. Don't blame me. I was just doing what I was told. God doesn't accept that. But he says, obey your masters. And, and notice how he phrases it. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. A lot of people say, well, that's fear and trembling of the master. Can you see that's fear and trembling of the presence of God in your life? That's a fear and a trembling that God has called you into his presence through his son. When you hear your master speak, your first thought isn't, how can I sabotage what he wants and how can I do what I want? Your first thought is, how can I glorify the Father? Now, there are sometimes when glorifying the Father means standing up on principle and it means being confrontational. Not as often as you, as you think or as you do it. But sometimes the glory of the Father means being a servant and looking at the other person. Because the gospel changes everything. Uh, just to read down quickly, not as eye-pleasers, um, uh, doing the will of God from the heart. That's the desire of doing the will of God. Let me skip down. Masters do the same thing. Stop threatening these folks. What does that mean? Stop throwing your weight around. Have any of you ever had a boss who just had to tell everybody what to do just to prove they were the boss? Didn't you like that? Didn't you love that? If you ever get in that situation, understand you have a golden opportunity to show the love of God in Christ Jesus by the way you treat other human beings who might be under your management. See, because the whole thing, and we'll just close with the, the whole thing, is that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, in every situation, in every relationship, the point is the glory of God in Christ. That's why the gospel changes everything turns it around and upside down and inside out. The gospel changes everything. And so what I'd like to do is, is just invite you to think about a situation in your life that might not be fair. It might be totally unjust. It might be a boss who's coming down hard on you, or it might be an employee that you have that, that, uh, that needs a, a correction and reproof. But you need God to be glorified in what I'd like to challenge you to do is just identify that, that situation, that relationship, and ask yourself, what changes if I see that other person through the lens of the glory of God, and I let the power of the gospel guide me in what I do? And I think you'll see a difference, because indeed, the gospel changes everything. Let's bow together. Father, we do ask that your Holy Spirit would work a work in us that would bring us from our old self and our old style of decision-making, our old way of treating people, that your Holy Spirit would liberate us from the world's mentality and the top-down structures that the world thinks are so important. Father, that your Holy Spirit would make of us servants and those who would in the name of Christ, serve others 
to bring to them your love in Christ, your grace, your mercy. Father, we ask that you would glorify yourself in us and through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.